0: IVN is proud to bring you the following podcast.
1: Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the principal political analyst for IVN, the independent voter news. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is Sean Griffiths, a nationally recognized expert in political reform and voting rights and the host of Toppling the Duopoly. He is also the editor of the IBN Network, where he's covered and published breaking news stories related to reform movements across the country that are focused on creating a better electoral and political landscape for voters. And today is no exception. Mr. Griffiths has done a deep dive into Georgia's new election law, and he's here to discuss what he's learned. Welcome to Deconstructed, Sean.
2: Well, thank you, TJ, for having me.
1: You know, I know you've taken the time to read SB 202, which is 98 pages of legalese. Mm -hmm. is the context for the Election Integrity Act of 2001 in Georgia that's drawing so much attention? Honestly, it
2: has a lot to do with the response to the 2020 election. When you listen to and read statements from individuals like Governor Brian Kemp talk about it, they say it was to address growing concerns with election integrity among voters now when you look more specifically at those concerns you can see that it's largely with the republican base after various claims were made about the 2020 election and afterwards but i will say what's interesting about this is that it's pretty much setting the foundation for the broader conversation nationally on voting rights and i think on one hand that's beneficial because We as a country do need to explore the issue of voting rights more and what it means, particularly as we go forward. But on the other hand, my take on it, and particularly with the response to it, is that we've seen an increase in what could be called top-down politics, and that is all the conversations around bills like SB202, even though it's focused specifically on the state of Georgia, the, the narrative is defined in national terms which again, having that conversation about voting rights on a national level is important, but also it's important to actually examine what specific bills do in specific states. And is it actually addressing problems that are going on within that specific state? Or you know, is it creating more problems than it's solving? And I think when we talk about SB202, there are very general conversations we can have, such as the impact that say things like voter ID have on various states. But I think it's important, particularly when I did the deep dive on this to look at, is it actually going to change anything within Georgia itself? Is it actually going to improve anything? Is it actually addressing legitimate problems in with Georgia elections?
1: Now, in that regard, Sean, it passed along a party-line vote, much as almost everything coming out of Congress these days does. So is it a Republican-oriented attempt to balance the table since they lost the presidency in that state's vote, and then they lost both of the Senate runoffs, which flipped control of the United States Senate? Is it a knee-jerk reaction to that, or something that's almost required because there was record turnout? and an unprecedented shift towards mail-in voting based on the pandemic. What's really the balancing act that's going on within Georgia?
2: From what I see, there's no coincidence that you are seeing bills like SB 202 and other bills in other states that are calling for similar things in the wake of the 2020 election. From what I've seen and from what I gather, it is very much a partisan knee-jerk reaction to those results, particularly when you think about this idea that the arguments for it are that it is designed to address growing concerns with election integrity. But those concerns are, as I mentioned earlier, largely with Republicans. And we've had conversations about the influence that party leaders and those who act as kind of voices for the party or allies of the party in the media can have on the way that people view things and the way that people talk about things. So when you have party leaders, when you have allies in the media continuing to talk about largely unfounded claims about the illegitimacy of the results, of cheating, of widespread fraud, of issues with ballot signatures, which was something that this bill partly tries to address with adding voter ID to absentee ballot. It does seem like it is more of a partisan response to at least may perhaps growing pressure from their own base, but also, as you kind of alluded, as a way to try to balance the equation after losing both the the presidential race in the state, but also the two Senate races.
1: Not only the loss that you've mentioned in both of those races, but did the scale of the loss contribute to this type of reaction in the in the presidential election, for example, is 23 one hundredths of a percent difference between the two candidates. So when you're in that less than 1% and less than a quarter of a percent, is that a driving force to say, hey, we were overwhelmed with turnout. We may not have had everything in place necessary to comfortably ensure election integrity. Is it a response to that or is that less legitimate? And is it really driven more by Republicans saying, we don't like to lose and we're going to try and shift the balance back to Republican Party? Well, as I
2: mentioned, the narrative has been focused on more of a top down approach. So when I hear parties advocate for changes to electoral rules to either make them fair or more secure, as you hear from the Republicans, or to expand voting rights, you might hear from Democrats, really what they're pushing is more, the the conversation does seem to center around more who benefits. And so when I read through the law and when I I read through the responses and listen to some of the media responses from lawmakers and from public officials like Governor Kemp, I do think that, yeah, this is largely just a, a partisan response that we don't like to lose. And we are going to pass these laws to try to do something about that.
1: Now, there was a civil rights backlash and effect against some of these changes. And we'll talk about the specifics in the second segment. But were there clear elements of racist voter suppression from your review? You know, when I reviewed this law, well, one, the
2: takeaway that I got from it was that there's a lot of hyperbole and there's a lot of reaction to this law that makes it sound like it's a lot worse than it is. And you hear some Democrats call it you know, Jim Crow on steroids and things like that. There's some aspects of the law that to me could disproportionately affect communities of color, particularly on the voter ID aspects of it and requiring that for absentee ballots and the effect that it could have on, say, low income communities and communities of color. I, I don't think it was directly intended for that i do again think that just based on the results and like like i said it does seem to be a, a partisan response to just losing that certain segments of the law are going to be more greatly felt in largely in large condensed urban populations areas like fulton county and other metro Atlanta counties that have large communities of color will be affected by it so I do think that there is a legitimate argument to make that it could have an impact, but a lot of it's kind of it's speculative right now. There's not enough really enough information to go on what impact it will actually have going forward, in my opinion.
1: Well, Sean, we're going to take a quick break and talk about some of the specifics of Georgia's new election law when we come back.
0: Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin.
1: Welcome back. My guest today is Sean Griffiths, host of Toppling the Duopoly and a nationally recognized expert in political reform and voting rights. Sean, we were just getting into some of the innuendos that have been proposed by both sides of what motivated them to pursue this new law. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics. Let's start with absentee voting. What were some of the changes in absentee voting that you found to be relevant and what was your impression of them?
2: I think that's a good question because and you mentioned it already and I have mentioned this before that when you define it by a national narrative, it does lead to misleading hyperbolic claims about what the law does. So one of the most notable changes and one of the changes that's getting a lot of attention with regards to absentee voting is requiring photo ID. There are options for voters that are important to note, including that the law says that you have to provide a driver's license number or a photo or state photo ID number, which means that you don't necessarily need the copy of your photo ID. But if you don't have those two things, then there are forms of photo ID that are acceptable already by state law. Now, the thing about voter ID is that the studies on this are kind of mixed on the impact that it actually has. There are some studies that say that voter ID, for the most part, it's attempting to solve a problem that doesn't really exist Like when you look at the type of fraud it's meant to combat statistically, it's non-existent in states like Georgia and other states. But I was just reading through a Harvard Business School study that said that it also doesn't really hurt participation to the degree that some people might argue. So it doesn't really solve problems, but it also doesn't really hurt. So it is one of those things where you could say, well, you know, if, if it's not really there to address the problem, then why is it needed? It's just kind of adding something more that the voter needs to exercise the right to vote. I think what's notable about this bill is that there was an original version of this bill, and then there was the final version of this bill. Then a few days before it was actually signed into law, Republican lawmakers had removed some very notable things and more controversial things like eliminating no-excuse absentee voting. That is no longer part of law. It's still state law that you don't have to have an excuse in order to apply for an absentee ballot. Now, the difference is, this time around, is that there are more restrictions on just how those ballots can be sent out, particularly county registrars and county elections officials cannot under SB202 they cannot just send out absentee applications to just any registered voter. The voter has to specifically request the application. And then there are limitations on third parties who in 2020 and 2018 would send out absentee ballot applications to registered voters, voters on their, their own roles or people on their own roles, so that if they wanted to, they could apply for the absentee ballot, but they didn't specifically specifically request it. So now if you're a third party and a non-government entity, you have to specifically state that when you send out the absentee ballot applications to people, that what they're getting in the mail is not from a government entity, it's from a third party entity, and you have to specifically state what your organiz- who your organization is and, and who you're affiliated with. So I I think those in particular are very notable things, particularly with regards to to absentee voting.
1: What about secure absentee ballot drop boxes? They added a provision for that. How does that impact the integrity of the election? Well,
2: interesting to note is that prior to SB 202 passing, drop boxes were not a part of state law. They were not guaranteed by state law, therefore they weren't used. The 2020 election was an exception because Georgia had implemented some emergency provisions, just like a lot of states did, uh, in order to address the increased demand for absentee ballots in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, with more people wanting to rely on mail-in voting and mail-in options rather than going in person. So as part of their emergency provisions, the state did allow drop boxes And these drop boxes would be located inside county registrar offices and early voting locations, but they would also be located outside on sidewalks. So people could essentially do curbside drop off with their ballots if they wanted to. SB 202 guarantees drop boxes in state law. So now... Counties are required to use draw boxes, but they're limited on where they can be placed. And specifically, they have to be indoors. They have to be set up in county registrar or absentee voting clerk offices. They have to be located in advanced voting locations, and they have to be securely monitored all the time. So, this is one of those things where you heard certain people at the national level, certain Democrats suggest that they did away with drop boxes or significantly reduced drop boxes, making it hard. But on one hand, for the first time, it's guaranteed by state law. But if you compare it to 2020, yes, there's a significant reduction in the access to these drop boxes argument. And the argument can certainly be made that compared to 2020, there is less access to that means to turn in a absentee ballot.
1: But potentially more security? Potentially, the yes, yes,
2: potentially, yes. potential, yes.
1: Yeah. How about early voting? What significant changes have been made in that area? Again, one of the common
2: narrative threads was that early voting was reduced and that particularly on the weekends, which was a misleading claim because the SB202 actually requires two Saturdays prior to the election to be used for early voting, and it gives two Sundays as optional for county registrars. Now, whether county registrars take up that opportunity to use those Sundays is speculative. It's it's something that's not quite known whether they will or will not do that. I feel like if you apply significant pressure from the community, then county registrars will allot those two Sundays for early voting, particularly one of the big things in the metro Atlanta area, in in communities of color, were things like uh, souls to the polls. Churches that after, you know, after church was done, congress would go and they, they would vote. That was a big thing during 2020 and earlier elections. So I feel like applying enough pressure from the community will kind of pressure the county registrars to use those Sundays for early voting.
1: there's been a lot of national discussion around the passing out of food and water to voters how did this legislation address that and what type of prohibition did it put in place and is it aggressively against minority population or is it something that in effect has always been in place just stated a different way so on this one i i found
2: this particular provision within the bill to be on now uh, before, there were obviously restrictions that exist in a lot of states that limit campaigns and third-party special interest groups on their contact with voters as they get closer to the polls. So a lot of places, including Georgia, would have like a 150-foot requirement that you could not pass out flyers, you cannot inter- really interact with voters as a representative of a campaign or a special interest group you know, within 150 feet of a, a polling location although the provisionist law includes food and water along with gifts and money which i think by themselves if you had just had gifts and money that obviously wouldn't be so controversial i think a lot of people would agree with that particularly with a lot of grown concern with money and politics and the role that special interests play in trying to influence policymakers and voters I think the whole thing about forbidding any person, and that's how it's stated in the law, from handing out food and water to people online, as part of that is a little weird. But it's important to note that people working at those polling locations, election officials and poll workers can set up water stands. And there there are certain provisions that allow election workers to provide that where special interest groups and other third party organizations uh, cannot
1: sean there were some changes with regard to the state election board as well can you touch upon those quickly
2: yeah so i actually think this is the most consequential provision of the bill or at least one of the most consequential provisions because The SB202 removes the Secretary of State as chairman of the State Board of Elections. He's still on the board technically, but he's now a non-voting member. And instead, the chair is elected by majority vote in the General Assembly. Now, the reason why this is so consequential is because this would essentially give the legislature and the partisan majority that controls the legislature influence over now three members of the board, because under the law prior to SB 202, the state house and the state senate each elected a member of the state board, and then another member had to be a member of the opposite party, and then the chair was secretary of state. Now the chair is decided by the majority in the general assembly, which, based on what we've seen from how politics works nowadays... You can kind of see the concern that this would be a partisan-driven vote. And you can kind of see how why voters would be concerned that a legislature full of policymakers that are prioritizing keeping their own positions of power and maintaining and gaining their political influence and political control over their own branch of government, where that conflict of interest is now that they can have that much influence over an agency within the executive branch and specifically within the division of elections. It's weird to me that the people of Georgia elect the secretary of state to oversee elections. He's supposed to be the chief elections administrator of the state. and to remove him as chairman of the the Board of Elections and as a voting member of the Board of Elections just seems odd to me. And it it was one of those provisions that baffled election experts and kind of confounded election experts on both sides of the aisle. I read uh, GOP strategists and consultants who thought that decision was short-sighted.
1: In that same context, weren't there restrictions on the new chair to try and create Some level of nonpartisan function wasn't there a two-year abeyance from any type of political activity?
2: I believe so. And again, it is important to note that the law does specifically state that that the the person elected does need to be nonpartisan, and there are specific provisions in place that say that they are barred from certain types of political activity ahead of being approved. I think the concern still, though, is if this person is put in his or her position by the legislature and by a majority vote by the General Assembly, there's a concern that there might be some feeling of them being beholden to the legislature for putting them in that position.
1: Very legitimate point. Now, Sean, we're gonna take another quick break and talk more about Georgia's new election law when we come back.
0: The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org.
1: Welcome back. My guest today is Sean Griffiths, a nationally recognized expert in political reform and voting rights and the host of Toppling the Duopoly. Sean, are there any major points that we missed in the last segment that you'd like to add, just to tie a bow on the Georgia election law?
2: Yeah, one thing going back to the absentee voting provisions within, it, I think something notable to mention is that the number of days that a person has to apply for an absentee ballot has essentially been cut in half compared to the law prior to SB 202. It went from 180 days to pretty much a little under half. That And I understand some people might ask, well, do people really need 180 days to apply for the absentee ballot? For me, I think the evidence points to that you see higher voter turnout and you see greater voter participation when you lessen their barriers to access. So even if that means extending the amount of time that they have to an absentee ballot or to apply for it, I think there's nothing wrong with allowing 180 days for that. If it gets more voters involved and it doesn't actually hurt the, the security or the integrity of the electoral process, which from what I can see with this law and based on what I've seen in my research on what's happened in Georgia over the last few years, particularly with elections, I don't think limiting the amount of time that people have to apply for an absentee ballot actually addresses any problems.
1: Excellent point this has been unusual from a social economic standpoint in that there's been a corporate response. There was some pressure put on some corporations and the corporations responded to that pressure in the case of Major League Baseball moving its all-star game. Some criticisms from Georgia corporations like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola. What's your impression of the response that this particular law has received?
2: I will say that this is one of those things where it is on one hand, as someone who has been in a nonpartisan reform space and someone who has been an advocate for electoral reforms that create a fair and more accountable process, you know, one thing that we've talked about within the own reform space is the need for businesses to get more involved. And you see increasing efforts to try to get business leaders more involved in the reform aspect, more involved in advocating for voting rights, So, it's one of those things where, on one hand, it's great to see uh, businesses and the business community get more involved in efforts to expand voting rights. Now, it's important, though, to to put within that context of if the businesses are relying on the hyperbole rather than the actual facts of the law. And so, on one hand, yeah, again, I think it's great to see businesses and the business community get more involved in voting rights. But on the other hand, you, know, you you want to make sure that if businesses are going to have an impact and be directly involved, that they're working with the right information. And I think uh, important to note about this is that businesses within Georgia actually transformed uh, the final version of SB 202. They were able to apply the necessary pressure on Republican lawmakers to remove things like eliminating no excuse absentee voting, by removing things like the original version of the bill would have reduced or eliminated early voting on Sundays completely. A lot of that hyperbole, a lot of that rhetoric that you hear at the national level with regards to this law is really concerning a previous version of the bill that didn't in the passing. And the reason why uh, Republicans changed that is because of direct involvement by businesses, by the business community. And so I think that is a productive area of business involvement. I don't know, for instance, with, you know, the MLB moving the all-star game from Atlanta metro area where local businesses could have benefited greatly from having the all-star game. So that's a lot of money that's moving to another state. But yeah, it's it's one of those things where on one hand you see the good in it, but on the other hand, you know, you don't want businesses to also act short-sighted. You don't want policymakers to be short-sighted with how they respond to the outcome of elections or how they approach voting rights. But you also don't want the business community to be short-sighted either about it.
1: Speaking of hyperbole and rhetoric, President of the United States adopted the phrase Jim Crow 2.0 on steroids. Now, you're too young to really remember Jim Crow. I, unfortunately, am not. I was around to witness 1964 Civil Rights Act that set the record for filibuster, somewhat ironic today. Democratic senators filibustered for 60 days, which is the longest filibuster in history. And Jim Crow was a horrible set of laws that separated everything from water fountains to hotels to restaurants and so forth. And in reading this, what is your impression of the impact of that type of rhetoric? Does it serve a purpose? Does it put more of a focal point on this so people pay attention? Or is it something that is out of balance with what this law actually says?
2: I would say that, as is the case with a lot of things that we're hearing within the national narrative of Republican versus Democratic politics, which, again, this top-down kind of approach to how we do politics in this country is that everything is defined within the national space. And at the national level, the narrative is defined as Republicans versus Democrats. So you hear as a result of that us versus them, the tit for tat narrative where it's always escalating in terms of stakes and all of that. You you will hear increasingly hyperbolic rhetoric that compares something like this to Jim Crow laws. Now, SB 202 is from my reading and my interpretation. And again, you're right, I'm too young to really remember that to the extent that it happened. But from, you know, the research I've done and reading, I I think, you know, it doesn't do a a service to the, the conversation that needs to be had on what this bill actually does, what it could have done. Is it actually addressing legitimate problems with Georgia elections, which, you know, from my opinion, it really doesn't. And it's more of a response to a narrative about the 2020 elections that was broadly deemed as by multiple fact checks and whatnot as false concerning the integrity of that process and the security of that process. Even the Republican Secretary of State commented on how secure the 2020 elections were. You know, I think that's where the conversation needs to be is on the nuance of how this will actually impact the state. And I think hyperbolic rhetorics like just throwing that term out there or Jim Crow on steroids or Jim Crow of the 21st century. I don't think does a service to the meaningful conversation that needs to happen
1: about this bill. Sean, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, your articles, and your show Toppling the Duopoly?
2: One of the best places they can go is just go to IVN.us. You'll see on the front page, you'll see Toppling the Duopoly, which will have uh, past episodes of my podcast. I focus particularly on the need for broad systemic electoral reform in a a nonpartisan manner and the the systemic barriers that are in place that prevent our electoral system from providing a fair and accurate and representative government. And you just go by going to IVN.us they can see toppling the duopoly. They can click on it. By that, they'll find out more information about me. You can follow me on Twitter at the Sean G. That's my handle. And it's a mixed bag on Twitter because it's also my personal account. But you'll also get more information, more links to, to my work there as well.
1: Well, Sean Griffiths, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We live in a world in which both parties pretend to occupy the moral high ground while feigning outrage at the actions of the other. And we have a media that has made the term journalistic integrity almost an oxymoron. So it was refreshing to have an open and honest discussion about an issue about which many people hold an opinion without any real factual basis. So keep fighting the good fight on toppling the duopoly. And thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you for having me.
0: This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.